college prepared me for a lot of things from how to get blackout drunk to how to write an essay in one night, but it definitely did not prepare me for a lot of aspects of the working world, like what questions to ask future employers, how to have a good rapport with my boss, or how to manage the pressure of always feeling like I need to do something. I also am going to admit that I am a little bit of a Nepo baby. I felt the need to overwork myself, especially during my senior year of high school, where I took six advanced placement courses, and when I wasn't doing schoolwork, extracurriculars, or working on my college essays, I was honest to God, passed out. And even when I got into my dream school, it still didn't feel like I was worthy. And so I kept overworking myself even after I got my acceptance letter, which just further stressed me out even more because that was supposed to be a really celebratory time, a time where my hard work paid off. But since I was so convinced that none of my work really propelled me, I just kept thinking that I needed to put my head down and grind even more to prove that I was like a hard-working, smart person. That pressure to constantly prove myself really bled into my job. At my old job, there was a pressure to keep up with the clock, and as somebody who already struggles with anxiety, the idea of having to keep up with everyone else was just insanely nerve-wracking. We worked in Salesforce, and there was a live chart showing exactly how many calls and emails each person had completed, and I was on it almost all the time, just working myself up, comparing myself to everyone else, and flat out losing my mind. Everybody else was doing it too. We were all looking at each other. We were all comparing our statistics, and we would have to send a message in our work Slack chat if we had a particularly long call or if we had to go to the bathroom. And nobody needs to know when I'm taking a dump. That's for me, myself, and my bathroom. I also was the only person who was fresh out of college at my old job, and it made me feel the need to work harder, not ask too many questions, and prove stereotypes that Gen Z is lazy and incompetent wrong. And that didn't turn out too great. So I wanted to talk to somebody who knows a lot about work to discuss imposter syndrome and toxic productivity. And y'all, I have found the perfect guest. Eve O'Brien knows a lot about work. She's been in leadership roles at major companies like Anheuser-Busch, Nielsen IQ, but right now she's just like me, a podcaster. She also founded her company, Happier at Work, to help HR departments make work environments as happy and healthy as possible, as well as releasing weekly podcasts about various workplace culture issues. I sat down with her to learn a little more about what makes a good workplace environment and what other young people like myself need to know when entering the workplace. My career spans over 20 years at this stage, and I've been in many organizations that I really enjoyed, you know, had such a great experience at work, was always really ambitious and always enjoyed working. And I had a couple of organizations that I worked in where I wasn't really sure that it was the right thing for me and I wasn't enjoying what I was doing and I really didn't feel like I belonged. So, you know, after almost 20 years at that stage, working in uh, 
global organizations in the fast moving consumer goods market research industry, I made the decision to leave my role. So that was five years ago now. It's kind of hard to believe that it's five years already. But, you know, one organization that I worked in was quite toxic and another organization, it just wasn't really a good fit for me in terms of my skills and abilities and the strengths that I could bring to the role. So I left that organization and I went on to do a study in uh, coaching. So I did a coaching certificate and then I did a coaching diploma and a master's in organizational behavior. And it wasn't until I did the master's, which I feel brought everything together in terms of my skills, in terms of the things that I enjoy and the things I care about most, I suppose. And that is people's experiences at work. So that's kind of brought me to the journey that I'm on now. And while I was doing the master's, I set up in business. I set up my business, Happier at Work, although it was called Empowerment Coaching when I first started. Um, And then I set up my podcast, which is also called Happier at Work. And it was kind of almost a, a roundabout way. I started the podcast first and then I then I set up the um then I set up, or then I changed the business name to be Happier at Work. What is happiness at work like for you? Oh, good question. Deep. We're getting in deep very early. <laughs> <laughs> at the surface level, let's say, it's that feeling of joy, that feeling that you get, that you're doing something that's that's actually quite important, that's having an impact, and that you're able to utilize your skills from the academic perspective and everything I've studied and, you know, after doing all of the research that I've done, I've been able to relate back that research to my own personal experiences as well. So what my research showed was that the importance of knowing your values. So what are your core values? And your core values can be described as what you stand for. Um, And once you know what you stand for, you also know what you stand against. And if people want to kind of figure out what their values are, you might think about things that you enjoy doing or think about things that really bother you. So an example I always think of is, you know, this is very much on a personal level. If I was living with someone and they left a big mess in the kitchen, you know, for me, that that really bothered me a lot because I like things to be in a quite ordered and structured And another way to think about that is what do you spend time, energy and money on? So that's the the values piece. Then then there is a need satisfaction at work. And this really rang true. So the need satisfaction at work, we have our psychological needs. We have three basic needs for autonomy. So a sense of choice and control over what you do and how you do it. Relatedness. So that's feeling of belonging with other people in the organization, but also how you relate what you do on a day-to-day basis to the bigger picture of what it is that the organization is trying to achieve. And then competence, and that's a feeling of being capable of doing your job. And I think it's really important to bring feedback into this as well. So if you're getting that regular feedback to say, yeah, Aoife, you're actually doing a really great job here, or what I see oftentimes is the case that leaders don't take the time to tell people when they're doing a good job. They feel like they don't need to address that. They only need to address when people are performing poorly. And so people who are performing well are kind of a little bit blind. They're a little bit clueless as to whether or not they're doing a good job, which can cause a little bit of anxiety as well. So they're, they're the... Um, the the need side of things and then the third element that I always look at and from an academic perspective the focus is very much on the demands of the role and your ability to 
fulfill the demands, which is the least important factor to this sense of happiness, this sense of belonging or this sense of fit. But I kind of flipped it around to say, let's not talk about our abilities to meet the demands of the role. Let's talk about strengths and how do we understand our strengths? How do we utilize our strengths and how do we maximize our strengths at work? And back to my most recent corporate role where I was in a leadership position, I really didn't feel like I was getting to use my strengths at all. And that was, in retrospect, a conscious decision on my part to take this role from an ego perspective. I was like, oh, I want to be on the leadership team. But the reality was I didn't get to show up and work to my strengths on a day-to-day basis. And that really impacted on my happiness at work. As somebody you know, who is applying for jobs, who is looking in the market, everything. What type of questions would you ask an interviewer to understand the workplace culture without prompting them to kind of oversell it and lie? Yeah, I think you're so right without the whole lies thing. And and maybe let's call it like it is right now. I've been in that situation when you're looking for a job, not that you tell lies in the interview, not that you kind of fluff things a little bit, but you're presenting your best self and the company is also presenting their best selves. So I think when it comes to an interview from the imp- in the I was going to say employee, but from the, I suppose, the candidate's perspective, asking questions about the company culture so that they don't tell lies will be things like, how do you deal with conflict in the team? You know, and if they shy away or if they take a break from those types of questions, then to me, that sends a major red flag. So things like dealing with conflict or what does success look like for this role within the first six months? What kind of manager or leader are you, you know, and and really being honest about how you like to be led as well. You know, I suppose there's so many different things and it's beyond just the words that they say, it's the reaction that they have or how long does it take? You know, how does the team celebrate success, for example? Are they able to answer those questions quite readily or do they just kind of shy away? But I think if, you you know, not just for yourself, Kira, but for anyone listening as well, thinking about what do you want? What do you stand for? And how can you ask questions that are geared more towards that? And, you know, I, I'm not, uh, it's been a long time since I've been in the job market. It's been, I want to say it's been probably about 10 years. And I know a lot of things have changed in that time. And I know certainly for most of my career, the perception has always been that the, organization has the upper hand and they're interviewing you for a role and you need to kind of mold yourself to see can you fit in with this organization but I'm seeing a change now and I believe you know I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well that it's more about both sides so the power has sort of shifted that it's not just the organization who's in interviewing the individual. It's the individual has the opportunity to interview the organization as well and make sure it's the right fit for them. So I discovered you through your article with the Irish Times about toxic productivity, which is kind of going to be the goal of this specific episode to kind of talk about feeling like you're kind of always failing at doing your job properly if you're not always doing something, which I think has definitely become really persistent right now with this youngest generation because we've been conditioned to kind of work online and always look for like that side hustle. And it gets to the point where even our hobbies feel like jobs when we're in this mindset of being an imposter it kind of feels like we're failing at whatever we're doing even if we are doing fine so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how in your opinion through your research with what you've done how 
toxic productivity and imposter syndrome interact with each other, how they're different and how they're the same. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting what you're saying, Kira. And before I answer the question, I want to take a little bit of a step back, going back to what you said about your hobbies feel like they're kind of a, a side hustle or you feel like you have to maximize your time. I think maybe it's capitalism. Maybe that's what it is that we've been conditioned. And I don't think it's just the younger generations. I think this applies to a lot of people. We've been con- conditioned to, to think in terms of productivity and how we're using our time. And if we're not making money, then that is some sort somehow some sort of wasted time. Because I get this sometimes as well. I kind of feel like, oh, well, I've just spent the afternoon doing something I really enjoy, but I took some time off work and I'm not making money. So that's really bad, you know? So so I, I want to kind of set the scene by saying that, that I don't think it's just the younger generations. And I think as a society, we've nearly been conditioned to think that every waking moment, we need to be doing something that will earn us money or doing something that will be productive or, or something like that. So I think it's important to say that um, imposter syndrome is something I've been talking about for a about I think about four years now for people who don't know it's that feeling that that you get that you're a fraud and you're going to be found out that you don't deserve the success that you have and definitely for me it's highly related to burnout because there's a lot of different things going on when we have imposter syndrome one of the areas can be you feel like a perfectionist and you feel like the need to constantly overwork and over deliver because of this sinking and underlying feeling that you're going to get found out as a fraud. And so you put in all the hours and you might even hide sometimes that you have been putting in all of these additional hours because you don't want people to realize that you've been putting all this additional time in. So it's important, I suppose, to realize that. And and the, I suppose the concept of toxic productivity is that people are constantly working and it's the hustle culture and the, oh, well, I was up at 5 a.m. to do this, this and this. And, you know, I didn't get enough sleep and I am boasting about how busy you are all the time. And I'm trying to change my language around that because a couple of friends called me out a few years ago and said, you're always busy. And I realized that that was the message I was putting out there, that if someone was trying to meet up with me in the evening or something, I'd be like, I'm busy. I'm, I'm already busy. I have plans. And the nature of who I am as a person, I tend to book things quite far in advance. I tend to overbook myself sometimes as well. So I forget to book in time to stay in. Now I've realized that I can't like, you know, when I was younger, I could go out four or five nights in a row. No problem. I don't mean going out on a crazy party or anything like that, but I just mean being out and being in the company of other people. But now I've realized I can do one night and then I need a night in to kind of (laughs) just relax and regroup. So I suppose it's about understanding yourself and and toxic productivity. And I think the term comes from toxic positivity. So when you're when you put the the face on to say everything's brilliant, it's, it's not about saying that everything's brilliant all the time. It's about recognizing a full toxic productivity. It's this focus on always getting stuff done. And for me, one of the antidotes to that managers need to be really clear on what it is that they're asking their teams to do. Really, for me, it trickles down from the top, this sense of clarity. So really defining, well, what does good enough look like? Because again, tying in with imposter syndrome, if you get something 
So there's always more work to be done. But if you have a really clear definition of what good enough looks like, then it makes it much easier for you to pull back and say, yeah, okay, so, you know, this is done now. Or something that I've heard someone else say recently is you get to what you feel is 80% done. And when you're at that stage, you seek out feedback from someone, you get someone's input into it. They might say, well, that looks done to me. Or they might give you some constructive feedback as to the remaining 20% that needs to be done. Or you might find that you have much less done than you need to do. So I think for me, it's about that setting those clear expectations, but then seeking out feedback as well so that you're not working more than, than what you need to work. How do we set boundaries when quite frankly, something isn't done and it's not going to be done on time. How do you deal with that? Really great question. And I'm trying to think of a specific example, if I have any of those to share, like at the point that you know that something is not going to be done to a deadline, that's the time that you need to let the person know. Again, it's about communication. Taking a a little bit of a step back, first of all, if you have a lot of things on your plate and you're worried that you might miss a deadline, it's about communicating that up front. And if someone is trying to give you additional work that needs to be done or if priorities are changing constantly, sometimes you don't know everything that someone has on their plate. If you take something off your plate and you give it to someone else, you sort of forget everything else that they have going on. What I found a really useful tool is not to say, when do you need this by, but when will you be using this information? So oftentimes, if you're producing something for someone else, they'll be using it in a meeting or, you know, and they'll have given themselves a bit of buffer time as well. But really, it's down to communication and the earlier, the better. That person may be able to be a bit flexible on the deadline if they have built in some Um, some flex into their timelines as well so if you're producing something for someone to take to a meeting or for someone to to kind of do their own work on it as well I really do appreciate having boundaries especially when it comes to something like this and I was wondering that you know we have these conversations with our higher-ups about setting a good boundary for our work life our balance how much we can get done what what kind of questions should we be asking ourselves in order to kind of take that work balance to just the point where we can not only just be happy with work, but also be happy with life? What I've learned over time is, and it's commonly known as work-life balance. Let's, you know, let's not escape that fact. But when you call it balance, it implies that you're doing some sort of a balancing act. And it implies that it's always out of balance and that you can never reach that sense of balance. So some of the other terms that I just wanted to float that I've heard of are work-life integration, work-life blend. And for me, just using that terminology makes things a little bit better. This comes back to what I talked about earlier. So the the sense of value. So what's really, really important to you? Um, And this kind of ties in with productivity as well. When you are good at something, when you have found something that is a real strength of yours, you may not even know that it's a strength because it's a natural ability that you can just do something without thinking about it. Or it takes other people or it takes you asking other people, what do you think I'm good at? Because there could be some things that you just do naturally and you don't realize. But when when you do something quite quickly and easily, that tends to be a strength. 
And so if you're working in a role where you're doing something quite quickly and quite easily with maybe a little bit of a challenge, because it's really important to have challenge at work as well. It's not just that you're coasting through. It's that some things are challenging or there's meaty problems that you need to solve. In terms of productivity, if you can get those kinds of things done more quickly than, say, one of your colleagues, then for me, that's something that you should be focusing your time on because you can get it done more quickly. It means that you have a higher level of productivity. It means that you're delivering more to the organization as well. So I suppose for me, it facilitates the ability to to have that work-life balance is by working to your strengths. So being able to to kind of utilize your strengths on a, on a day-to-day basis. What if you're not enjoying work? There's a, there's a few solutions to this. And the first one really is understanding why, like what's the underlying reason that you're not enjoying work? Is it your colleagues? Is it the type of role that you have? Do you have a crappy boss? Is it a toxic culture? So really understanding why. But then the second point is to try and find something that you enjoy about work. Like, is there something that you enjoy? So maybe you have a crappy boss, but you have some amazing colleagues that you really enjoy. So finding that balance between like really understanding why you don't like it and then finding some things to be happy about at work. I know so many people who are not happy in work, but who refuse to do anything about it. So they'll just stay and they believe that work needs to be hard. They believe that work needs to be bad, that it's not something that you're supposed to enjoy. But when I was in those situations myself, I just left. What I would say to someone is, if you can get out of that situation as quickly as possible. You know, if you have the financial means, then leave straight away without anything else to go to. If you don't have the financial means, then start dusting down your CV, your resume, brush up your LinkedIn profile, start connecting with people. What I'm seeing out there a lot is that most jobs are not advertised. They're actually found through people's networks. So the greater network that you can build within the industry that you're working in, the more likely it is that you can find a role. And some people might be afraid to reach out. But what you find is that most people are quite willing to have a cup of coffee, whether it's a virtual cup of coffee, and talk about themselves and talk about their career. And you just say, I really admire your career and I'd love to know how you got to where you are. Why are conversations like this where we discuss kind of more intimate parts of our work even and talk about like what's making us happy at work what's not why are we putting you know time stress effort what type of boundaries we set why are these conversations important to have for me when I started on this journey I knew I had a message to share and I wanted to get that message out there it's important to let other people know that they're not alone so if they're experiencing what we have experienced at work, then it's really important to let them know that because sometimes we can feel very alone. We can feel like I'm the only person who's ever experienced a terrible working environment, a toxic boss, a toxic colleague, whatever it might be. So I think having these conversations is really important to let people know that that they aren't alone, that we all experience this, but also to let people know if they're not enjoying work, then they can do something about it. For me, it's not just about the conversation. I think it's so important to have the conversations, but for me, I love action. So like, what will, if you're listening to this podcast today, what will you do differently as a result of listening to this podcast? Will you try and understand what your core values are? Will you try and pick out some of the things that you particularly like about your role? You know, it's not just about knowing the information. It's about taking action on that information as well. And I think that's why it's so important. And building these communities around that. And again, a, a, an idea that I have to develop 
the community even further is to set up an actual community that people can join and hold each other accountable. So again, it's not just about talking. It's about saying, I'm planning to do this, this and this today. Wow. I totally wish I had that resource when I was adjusting to the job market. And I totally would recommend you guys looking into Happier at Work if you're in a similar position to me. Uh, I know a lot of people, like, after listening to this, might want to listen to you. So I'd love for you to just give a quick little elevator pitch for your podcast where people can find you and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Kira. And for me, I've tried to make sure that the podcast is available wherever people get podcasts. And I've recently started a YouTube channel. So the YouTube handle is happier at work HQ. But if you're, you know, I was going to say, if you're listening, obviously you are listening to this podcast right now, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, if you search for happier at work, give me a follow, give me a rating, give me a review, have a listen. I cover various different things relating to happiness at work, looking at it from the organization, from the leadership perspective, as well as from the employee perspective. So looking at things like leadership equity, how do we get more women into senior leadership positions, looking at things like engagement and belonging, how do we engage our staff or how do we feel more engaged with the work that we're doing, productivity and performance. So, you know, how do we How do we become more productive without becoming toxically productive as well? And how do we rethink how we measure how we perform at work? And then also the future of work. So what are some of the trends that are coming down the line, like the four-day week, like remote working? So I'm currently working in Tenerife in the Canary Islands. So things like that. So yeah, definitely check it out wherever you get podcasts or check out the YouTube channel, Happier at Work HQ. Talking about work outside of our office space, be it real or virtual, can be really taboo. But no matter what career you have, everyone deserves to be happy. And let's stop completely blaming these new graduates for struggling to acclimate to the workforce because it's also our boss's faults for not understanding that we come into the workforce with different circumstances than our peers from the classes before. We spent a good chunk of our college experience in a pandemic, taking classes online, having to do internships online, missing out on study abroad experiences, having to take class in our childhood bedrooms. It's not our fault that it might be harder for us to learn what a work environment is like because we missed out on so much and if you hire an employee and their class of 2021 class of 2022 class of 2023 make sure that you take a little extra time to just make sure that they can properly adjust to be happy and healthy at work And I promise if you put in the extra effort, Gen Z is creative, we're empowered, we are awesome, we have all of these skills that are super useful. 
you just have to give us some patience because we come from really unique circumstances that nobody else is fully going to be able to understand. And in order to have a happy work environment, you're going to have to start hiring younger people, people out of college to work at those entry-level positions. And if you don't have empathy for us in our unique situations, then you're not going to be effective. Your company is not going to be effective. You're going to have to let go of employees like me who maybe just needed a little more time, a little more grace, and a little more patience. Mic drop. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Failing Down the Rabbit Hole. All episodes are written, recorded, and produced by yours truly. The theme music is produced by Jabari Butler, and the cover art is illustrated by Ariana Vilches. If you liked this week's episode and want to further the pod, subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. XOXO, Kira.